Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Today, I'm looking at the Northern Ontario community of Capuscasing. As usual, I won't be going through a chronological look of the community, but rather looking at various aspects of the community that are interesting from its history. So let's begin. The Indigenous for centuries, the area that would be Kapuskasing was home to the Cree and Moose Cree people who gave the name of Kapuskasing to the river, which means bend in the river, and it is from that river that the community gets its name. The indigenous would begin to see their lives change as the fur traders arrived, changing the economic dynamic of the landscape and the cultures that dotted it. As the fur traders came in, a new culture would emerge, the Métis, and over time they would occupy the landscape around Kapuskasing and begin to venture west where they would settle in great numbers in what would one day be Manitoba. The Founding of the Community The earliest recorded history of the district dates back to 1777 when a small fur trading house was built nearby by the Hudson's Bay Company. The first post was small, only 26 feet by 18 feet, and from 1781 to 1785, a new house was built, and it was given the name of Brunswick House. Trading was done through the area well into the 19th century. In 1875, Dr. Robert Bell would conduct the first reported survey in the district for the Geological Survey of Canada. Kepiskasing would get its modern start thanks, as with many places, to the railroad. Located in what was often called New Ontario, the National Transcontinental Railway, which would later become the Canadian National Railway, would be built in 1911. And at the time, there was a McPherson station, which was just a small water stop along the line. For several years in the lead-up to the First World War, the McPherson stop was a water stop for steam locomotives that were hauling grain from the west. William Lindsay would arrive in the area in 1915 to work as a baker at the internment camp, more on that later, and described it as such, quote, there was nothing north of the railway tracks. We used to bake 24 bags of flour in 24 hours. Keeping warm in tar paper shacks was nearly a full-time occupation in itself, and getting around from place to place was not easy. The roads were not what they are today, and neither were the cars. End quote. Following the war, a government initiative to bring veterans to the area was launched. Again, more on that later. A Mrs. Joe Downey would recall later, quote, we lived in a tent and slept on sawdust, and all we could see was just trees and water. End quote. Speaking of cars, the first one was not really seen in Kapuskasing until the mid 1920s. In 1920, the Spruce Falls Company would be created, and its paper mill would be the driving force behind the growth of the community. By 1921, the pulp mill was completed with the capability of producing 75 tons of pulp. 
Things would move slowly at this point, but development was coming. By 1923, there was a small water storage facility and a hydroelectric dam was built at Spruce Falls. After some setbacks early in its history, the mill would expand and with it the community of Kapuskasing. On July 13, 1928, the New York Times would be printed entirely on Spruce Falls paper, and that has continued to this very day. In 1991, the plant was purchased by local residents and Tembeck Incorporated, allowing it to remain an important part of the community for years to come. Thanks to the mill and the steady employment it provided on February 18, 1921, the town of Kapuskasing would be formed. At the time, it was completely a company town with most of the men being employed at the mill. In 1925, a community club would open, which contained a theater, bowling alley, a library, gym, meeting room, and more. Soon after, a skating rink and ball diamonds were built, followed by a hospital and post office in 1927. Today, Kapuskasing is home to over 8,000 people. The Internment Camp When the First World War broke out, there was a fear in Canada over enemy aliens who were immigrants that came to Canada before the war to start new lives and were now just looking to live their life. Unfortunately, anti-German fear reached a fever pitch and the decision was made to put enemy aliens into internment camps. I actually talked about this on the second episode of Canada's Great War and I encourage you to check it out. The camp at what would one day be Kapuskasing would have 1,300 German, Austrian and Turkish prisoners, and most of those interned were Canadian residents. At the camp, prisoners were kept active in construction of buildings, clearing the land for the future experimental farm that I'll talk about later, and harvesting the ample timber in the area. The camp was so isolated that there was little in the way of fences and the only access to the location was via the railroad that had been built through earlier. For those who worked at the camp, they would often deal with mosquitoes that tormented them in the summer heat, while in the winter they dealt with terrible cold. Of course, even though it was isolated, that didn't stop some from trying to escape. On December 18, 1917, three Austrians decided to escape the camp, intending to catch a train to Cochrane to at least get away from the camp for a few days. At 2pm on that day, a prisoner slipped across the cleared perimeter in the woods when two guards had their backs turned, and five minutes later, as snow fell, two others took advantage of getting away. At 3.20pm, during a regular roll call, it was found that three prisoners were missing. Four guards were dispatched to look for tracks. At 3.30pm, a trail of footprints heading west was found. At 4.45pm, darkness forced some of the searchers to return to camp, while others continued on in their search for the prisoners. At 8.10pm, searchers once again departed from the camp with lights and retraced steps that they followed until dusk. At 12.30am, the escapees were caught and returned to their cells. In August of 1917, the prisoners would briefly strike due to a hard schedule they were forced to work and the isolation from families in their homes elsewhere in Canada. On May 5, 1920, the camp was officially cleared and closed and the buildings were sold to tender and demolished by a Toronto company. Today, a small cemetery is all the remains of the camp, which is where victims of the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic were buried. The Kapuskasing Inn While it is no longer with us, sadly, due to an unfortunate incident of arson two decades ago, the history of the Kapuskasing Inn is so fascinating I want to make sure I included it. Built between 1927 and 1928 by George Gwenlock, 
whose father, also named George, had designed several notable buildings in Toronto, including the buildings at Exhibition Place, the CNE Government Building, and the North Wing of the Ontario Legislative Building. Commissioned to build the inn by the Spruce Falls Company, it was designed in the style of a neo-Tudor, and it quickly became an incredibly important part of the community. When Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip made their first visit to Canada in 1951, the inn would actually host them. On the day of their visit, the population of Kapuskasing, 5,000 people at the time, ballooned to 20,000 as people crowded around the inn to get a glimpse at the royal couple. They stood on the lawns yelling, quote, We want Elizabeth, end quote. On the day of the arrival, the Kapuskasing newspaper stated in a large headline, quote, Kapuskasing, by no mere fluke, welcomes the princess and the duke, end quote. After stepping off the plane, she would inspect the Guard of Honor and had an informal reception at the community hall. And while visiting the community, she also walked two miles through the pulp and paper mill, visited the hospital, and toured the town. During her tour of the mill, she asked the wife of J.A. Ferrier about the housing situation of the community, and Ferrier's wife stated, quote, She told me she thought the houses looked very nice from the outside and asked me if they were as comfortable within as they seemed to be. I told her they were grand to live in, end quote. When she appeared, she gave a short 175-word speech of thanks for the welcome she and her husband were receiving in the community. She spoke of her appreciation to those who first come to the district as pioneers and firsthand learned the hardships of frontier life. A last royal way for Canadians and their good neighbours from over the river, and the royal tour goes off the beaten track to the delight of the children of Kapus Casing, a small mill town in Ontario. When it was learned that a brownie would present a bouquet to the princess, membership of the pack soared, and here's the lucky girl who represents the brownies and guides of the town. Kappas Casing has about 5,000 inhabitants, most of them employed in the huge pulp and paper mills which supply newsprint for New York's ever-hungry presses. The inn would close in 2002, but in 2007 new investors came in to renovate it and return it to its former glory. Sadly, on May 22, 2007, youth set fire to the inn, and it was damaged beyond repair. In 2008, what was left of the inn was demolished. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I've spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms, and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call one 866 Testing cars in the cold. 
One unique claim to fame for Kapuskasing is that for General Motors, it is the site where they sent their cars to make sure they would work in the Canadian cold. Of course, the cold was not the only reason for the location being chosen. Due to being relatively near to the Canadian headquarters of General Motors in Canada and Oshawa, it was a perfect place to set up a testing facility. General Motors Cold Weather Center was announced in 1971 and construction began in 1972, with the official opening coming in 1973. General Motors had actually been coming to Kapuskasing since 1948, but it was in 1973 that they finally had a facility. When the facility opened, GM Canada President John Baker was there to saw through a bar of ice to open the doors. The facility originally covered 159 acres, which included a 1.9-kilometer oval test track and several buildings. Testers spend days and nights cold starting, driving, checking heater performance, tires, brakes, batteries, and more. In each year, upwards of 300 vehicles are tested at the facility. The facility has grown over the past 50 years as well. It now features a larger track, covers 272 acres, has a 13-car garage, and two vehicle testing lanes. I wake up at 5.30. Get dressed, long johns again. Check the weather, better start the car. I arrive at work ready for a 7 a.m. inspection drive with Colin. At GM's Cold Weather Development Center, we conduct durability testing on pre-production vehicles. We prove our vehicles can withstand various elements in extreme conditions before they go to market. We're back for the cold starts with the drivers. Given today's temperatures, looks like I'll be boosting K39 again. I made a note to check for a squeaky console mentioned in the driver comments. Yep, that's squeaky. Daily staff meeting with the team. Josh ensures everyone is up to date on vehicle status and safety items. The morning hustle is all a blur to keep on top of different issues. Fred shows me a data dump, Devin checks the part in math, Milos takes diagnostic codes, and Frank, he keeps the team in check. Lunch at noon gives me time to fuel up on this week's meal prep. We pushed all the tables together like the tight-knit family we are. Are you sure you don't want to be in the video? No, I don't want to be. You don't want to be? <laughs> time is precious here in CAP. We work quickly and efficiently to ensure we keep vehicles on schedule and customer satisfaction in mind. There's always something new to learn, especially from the mechanics. Steph and Riley always take the time to explain any abnormalities they find. Things quiet down in the late afternoon, and with some peace and quiet, I can catch up on some paperwork. Gotta blow off some steam so I hit the gym. The only one in cab. I get a call from the lead engineer, so looks like I'm headed back to work to calibrate this next generation SUV. Evenings are for unwinding and catching up with loved ones far away. Lights off, alarm set for 5.30, ready to do it all again. But I don't mind. I work for GM's Cold Weather Development Center. There are other testing facilities, including in Thompson, Manitoba and Timlins, Ontario, but the first of them all was Kapuskasing. The Soldier Colony when the First World War ended, many returning soldiers were looking for a place to settle and begin their new life after the trauma of war. At Kapuskasing, the government saw potential in what would later be called the Great Clay Belt, and a large experimental farm was established west of the community. At this farm, the community would develop crops for the area. When soldiers began to return from the war, the Returned Soldiers and Sailors Act of 1917 was created. Soldiers would receive homesteads, grants, and loans, 
while also being paid $500 for clearing their land. Each settler would receive 100 acres of land as well as horses and equipment on loan to the settlers from the government. Soon, 101 soldiers took up the offer to farm in the area, but they soon found that it was not quite what they had been promised. One soldier would state, quote, There are seven months of snow, two months of rain, and the remainder mosquitoes and black flies. End quote. The government felt that the area was excellent for farming if work was put in to get the land ready. On March 9, 1920, J.P.S. Ballantyne, the superintendent of the farm, was asked by the commission of the inquiry chairman, W.F. Nickel, about the conditions at Kapiskasing, and he responded, quote, Get the bush cleared away, get surface drainage done, and let in the sunshine, end quote. The Vancouver Daily World would take a different take with its headline, quote, Conditions at Kapiskasing settlement likely to result in providing recruits for insane asylums, end quote. H.H. Dewar, the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, would put the blame for the soldier colony issue not on the federal government, but on the provincial government. He would state, quote, I am surprised that no demand has been made for the dismissal of the Deputy Minister of Lands and Forests, end quote. By April, it was estimated by the government that 40 to 50 of the veteran settlers would remain on the colony, but by the end of the year, only nine remained. The Radar Base The history of Kapiskasing and the military extends beyond the First World War and the soldiers' colony. While many from the area served during both wars, it was in the Second World War that Kapiskasing found another use, as a radar site. During the war, Kapiskasing was one of only five Northern Ontario radar bases that were set up to watch for any attacks on the Sioux Locks, located in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Of the five radar bases, Kapiskasing was the most important and also the headquarters. As a result of this and its role in protecting an important piece of American infrastructure, the United States Armed Air Forces were stationed there. While the Second World War and the subsequent Cold War are now over, Kapiskasing still serves a purpose with its detection system. The site of the radar base is now part of the Super Dual Aerial Radar Network, which tracks and measures ionospheric turbulence. There are 35 sites in the northern and southern hemispheres, and Kapiskasing is the only one located in Ontario. The Ron Morrill Memorial Museum It was in 1971 that the Ron Morrill Memorial Museum was created by Ron Morrill Sr. as a way to house Locomotive 5107. His hope was to combine his passions of history and trains. The locomotive was built by Montreal Locomotive Works in May of 1919 and ran until 1961. Along with the locomotive, there is the Canadian National Coach 5372, built in 1913 and purchased by Canadian National in 1942 and converted to a day coach. It would be withdrawn from service on July 17, 1970. In that car, the local history aspect of the museum is housed, which I'll talk about shortly. The Canadian National Coach 5145, built in 1919, would operate until September 20, 1970, and now houses the 32-foot by 8-foot model train set along with other displays. Today, the museum features exhibits that highlight the history of Kapiskasing, artifacts from the town's history, as well as a permanent exhibit that details the history of the prisoner of war camp from the First World War. There's also a little red caboose built in 1912 which serves as the gift shop and office for the museum. You can also find a railway memorial exhibit and several sculptures by celebrated Canadian sculptor Maurice Gaudreau. 
I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Kappa's casing. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden Doug Campbell Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurieann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.